Welcome to Oncopharm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I am a professor of pharmacy practice at the supporting sponsor of Oncopharm, uh, ETSU's Bill Gadden College of Pharmacy. It's a cold and rainy day here uh, in Northeast Tennessee. Wish it would snow, which is cold enough to snow, uh, but it is not. Got quite a bit to talk about on uh, today's podcast. First, I uh, want to point out um, a little salty maybe about this. Um, Gilead Sciences put out a, a Friday uh, press release the day before uh, a holiday weekend here in the States about the voluntary uh, withdrawal of Idolelisib, uh, Zytoleg for follicular lymphoma and SLL, although still approved for CLL. And we think of CLL slash SLL as the same thing, just in the blood versus in the nodes. Uh, I'm not going to talk about this a whole lot. Just want to point out because I think the reason they put out on uh, Friday of a holiday weekend is so people didn't know about it. So I'm just trying to call it out as much, just so we're all informed. You know, the press release said, uh, as the treatment landscape of follicular lymphoma and SLL have evolved, enrollment in the confirmatory study, because these were accelerated approvals, of course, uh, there's been a challenge to get patients on there, which I think, you know, they're probably not making money for those indications is what that really, what that means. That treatment landscape says it's not worth it anymore. Uh, anyway, still approved for CLL. Uh, Idol Ellisib. Um, anyway, and that's PFS data. All right, so let's move on. I, I got kind of four things to talk about, and I'm going to start, I'm going to get sciencey for a second. And um, there is a landmark paper by Hanahan and Weinstein from Cell in, I want to say it was 2000, maybe it's 2010 even, I don't know. Anyway, called The Hallmarks of Cancer. And at that time, uh, these two, uh, you know, basic science researchers had, you know, culled all the data and from a big picture kind of categorized different attributes of cancer. Uh, and those original eight were sustaining proliferative signaling. So think of uh, constitutionally activated BRAV V600 mutations, uh, evading growth suppressors, so P53 mutations, uh, enabling replicative uh, immortality, tumor promoting uh, inflammation, so think Barrett's esophagus sort of stuff, uh, activating invasion and metastasis, uh, inducing or accessing vasculature, so VEGF upregulation, genomic instability mutation, and resisting cell death. And then a couple years later, they added uh, two other emerging hallmarks, uh, deregulating cellular metabolism, and then avoided immune destruction, which uh, now makes up the bulk of what I talk about on the podcast with regards to immune checkpoint inhibitors. Um, so Weinstein, I believe, has passed away, and Hanahan uh, put out a new paper uh, where he adds um, four more enabling characteristics and enabling or emerging hallmarks and enabling characteristics. And I think it's really important to to talk about the, you know the basic science here because this uh, helps us understand why cancer is so challenging to treat and and how uh, drugs can be used. Uh, to, to treat cancer. So I won't get into detail on this, but I do encourage you all to read this. Um, you know, um, I think it's important to understand what's going on here in these tumors. Uh, so one is unlocking phenotypic plasticity. Uh, in other words, why um, uh, you know, a, a breast cancer cell can kind of grow out of nowhere in bone tissue, but still have all the phenotype, the phenotypical characteristics of breast cells, even though it's in uh, the bone. So that's one of the hallmarks. Um, uh, senescent cells, so cells that kind of go quiet, and sometimes uh, they, they describe some examples where these quiet cells, kind of in G0 cell cycle, not doing anything, actually can promote tumor genesis by uh, paracrine functions, by secreting hormones that cause nearby cells to become uh, tumorigenic. Um, really interesting polymorphic microbiomes. 
So uh, a good example of this is right-sided colon cancer where bacterial biofilms tend to um, uh, increase uh, the development of certain colon cancers. Um, uh, and these colon cancers tend to be have more uh, mismatch repair deficiency and respond better to immune checkpoint inhibitors. And of course, we've talked on the pod before about um, you know, pre-immune checkpoint inhibitor antibiotics uh, leading, um, being associated, pre, uh, pre-immunotherapy antibiotics being associated with poor response. And of course, is that um, you're changing the microbiome, so then the immunotherapy doesn't work as well, or are the folks receiving antibiotics just kind of sicker? Now, the evidence is pretty consistent that given those antibiotics, you know, is associated with poor performance. Uh, so this um, polymorphic microbiome uh, lends some credence to that theory that maybe there is some science behind that. It's not just an association with uh, with sicker patients. And the last one is non-mutational epigenetic reprogramming, uh, which is really um, uh, not scary to think about, but it's notable because so much of what we're doing now in determining cancer treatment, especially in the metastatic setting, uh, is looking at genetic changes of the, the tumor genome. And um, it's not that simple. There are non-mutational changes in the epigenetics that we can't detect necessarily uh, with, with, you know, with testing for mutation because there's not a mutation. It's epigenetic uh, and, and likely explains uh, why, um, or not likely, I don't know if it's likely, but it might explain why um, you know, uh, our, our targeted therapies when we have an actual mutation are, are kind of of limited value in terms of the duration of response that you can gain from that. So I think that's really, really useful stuff here. Uh, with regards to understanding the science behind this. Um, while we're on kind of a science-y stuff, there is a really nice paper uh, in um, the European Journal of Cancer, I think, uh, and this is uh, titled UGT-1A1 Genotype Guided Dosing of Irinotecan, a Prospective Safety and Cost Analysis Study in Poor Metabolizer Patients, essentially saying that it's cost-effective to test these folks and feasible from a time standpoint to test patients receiving ivermectin for UGT-1A1. I encourage you all to, to, to uh, look at this study. Uh, there is a, a coming podcast uh, that talks a lot about precision medicine and pharmacogenomics and tumor genomics. Uh, we talk about how this evolves, and we do ask the question there, what's it going to take to get to the point here where we retest everyone up front? for a DPD or a DPYD for capecitabine or 5-FU or for UGT-1A1 for ironitecan. The one little pearl I'll call out from this is I'm familiar with, you're probably familiar with UGT-1A1 star 28 as the, the variant allele that confers minimal activity for UGT-1A1. There's another one, star star 93, that I wasn't aware of also that, that maybe we should be testing for as well, further illustrating the ongoing onslaught of information that comes out that we all need to stay current with. Okay, uh, real quick, going back to December 3rd, I think it was, the FDA-approved pembrolizumab uh, for the adjuvant treatment of melanoma. And you're saying, John, that's, we've known that. We've known the adjuvant has been approved, uh, adjuvant pembro, for stage 3. This is for stage 2B and 2C, which kind of slipped under my radar. Actually, I think it was middle December, December 12th or something. This slipped under my radar. Um, and this is based on Keynote 716, about 800 patients with stage 2B or 2C melanoma randomized to Pembro or placebo. The primary endpoint here is relapse-free survival, and they did not look at, they did not count a relapse event as a new melanoma. Okay, this is good. Um, and you know, the, the hazard ratio here is 0.65, p-value of 0.0132. Um, so, you know, it, you know that's, that's a decent effect size for relapse-free survival. Um, however, does that translate to 
to overall survival, you know, we don't know at this point. And if you look in our favorite guidelines, even for stage three um, adjuvant treatment with immune checkpoint inhibitors, there are still some ambiguity. There's not uniformity in, in the recommendations um, from our favorite guidelines from NCCN of uh, basically are these slam dunk that we give adjuvant for everybody with stage three. And there are some differences between 3A melanoma and 3B and 3C, and there's a 3D, and the staging classification changed from melanoma. So there are inconsistencies there. But observation in stage three melanoma is still a 2A option, still reasonable to do considering the risk benefit uh, and the fact that you do have great options uh, at, at metastasis. And melanoma is kind of different. It's a little bit like a whack-a-mole disease. If you do get some relapse and it's a singular, you know, an oligometastatic lesion, just one spot, uh, you can usually resect that pretty easily depending on its location. And those patients still will go on and have good disease-free survival after uh, oligometastatectomy. Easy for me to say. So anyway, uh, Pembro, adjuvant, um, for melanoma in the phase 2B and 2C setting. Uh, so anyway, worth pointing that out without getting into a ton of detail. I do want to get into some detail. By the way, that this Keynote 716 not been published yet uh, was presented at ESMO in the fall of 2021, I believe. Um, all right, so I want to talk about, uh, this is another Pembro study. So of course, it's Keynote 775, sorry, study 309 slash keynote 775. This was in uh, the New England Journal of Medicine uh, yesterday, so in the January 20th edition, uh, which is today's date, but it comes out on Wednesday nights. All right, so this is lenvatinib plus Pembro uh, versus chemo for advanced endometrial cancer. Uh, so um, kind of standard treatment of metastatic endometrial cancer. Let's back up. So, you know, endometrial cancer or uterine cancer, it's a solid tumor. If you cut out, you cut out, right? And certain patients get adjuvant treatment in the early stage setting, and that adjuvant treatment regimen is carboplatin and paclitaxel. And the treatment of choice for uh, metastatic disease, first line, is carboplatin, paclitaxel. All right, so this is looking at, at second-line patients in the metastatic setting who had already received a platinum-based regimen, and they were um, randomized to either lenvatinib plus Pembro or chemo, and the chemo could be doxorubicin or paclitaxel. Um, and about 26% of these folks received paclitaxel as their chemo. Uh, and we know they all got carbo, or they all got some sort of platinum-based chemo. 25% had platinum twice, so in the adjuvant setting, and then uh, in the relapse in the metastatic setting, they got it again. We don't know how many got paclitaxel, and I hope none of those folks who got paclitaxel got it. But if they're in the U.S., I'm sure they got carboplatin paclitaxel as their first-line metastatic treatment. It's been the standard of care for a long time. So like 26% of these people in the chemo are maybe were given paclitaxel when they already failed a paclitaxel regimen, which seems crazy to me. I don't know how this is not pointed out in the peer review process. They don't call it out how many got that. Um, it's a multinational study. Uh, so maybe in other nations, they don't do carboplatin paclitaxel. Certainly that, that could be. Um, I also want to point out that um, you know we know that pembrolizumab uh, has a good activity in mismatch repair deficient or microcytolite high endometrial cancer. This is looking at everybody, and the majority of patients here are mismatch repair proficient. So you know their their ability to repair DNA is normal. Um, in fact, uh, you know 85, 84 percent of folks are mismatch repair deficient, and that's what they're looking at here. Um, is a whole population, and specifically the proficient mismatch repair. Um, they, they have a, a co-primary endpoint of progression-free survival and overall survival. This is uh, the final PFS analysis and interim overall survival analysis 
their uh, associated alphas for this for, for overall survival are 0 0.049, so just like one cent less than five, uh, five dollars, and um, and then 0 0.01 or 0 0.01 for PFS. So uh, they spent just a little bit on PFS and left most of their five dollar alpha for overall survival, which seems appropriate. Uh, there's a nice phase two study of lumvatinib plus Pembro. There are a couple phase two studies, one of which is the basis for our guidelines actually giving lumvatinib Pembro a category one recommendation, uh, I think after two lines of treatment here. So anyway, this is trying to move lumvatinib Pembro up in all comers after basically the second line treatment of metastatic uh, endometrial cancer. Um, so anyway, you know, it, it, it's good. It's good, it works. Uh, you know, good PFS. Uh, hazard ratio of PFS is 0.6. Uh, that's in everybody. If you just look at, sorry, that's in proficient mismatch repair. If you add in the 15% the who have mismatch repair deficiency, for whom we know Pembro works really well, that hazard ratio goes down to 0.56. So, um, you know, oftentimes, you know, we talk about, I use the analogy that between Michael Jordan and myself, we've won six, uh, you know, NBA titles and finals MVPs. And this takes a little bit of a different approach to that. It's kind of like, you know, this team uh, is really good, and then if you add a good player, they're even better, right? But the team by itself is still good. So this regimen is still good and works even if they don't have mismatch repair deficiency because they do a separate analysis of that that is statistically significant in that. That PFS benefit does translate to overall survival benefit. Those hazard ratios are 0.68 in the proficient population and then 0.62 in all comers. Again, a little bit better when you include those mismatch repair deficient uh, patients. Now, um, you may be thinking at this point, all right, so Linvatinib plus Pembro is better than chemo. There's a caveat here. It's probably better than chemo because who knows what happens if you take out the quarter of the patients who got Paclitaxel after maybe having Paclitaxel again. It's almost like giving, it's not like giving placebo, it's just giving something toxic. I, you know, I, why would they do that? I mean, I mean, I know why they do that, but why would we let them do that in the peer review process? Call out how many people got that, and there should be a separate analysis. Someone write a letter to the editor. We need a separate analysis of those who just got doxorubicin or exclude those patients who had prior carbopaclitaxel and then went on to receive paclitaxel. Drives me nuts. All right. <sighs> Rant over. Okay, so lunvatinib Pembro versus chemo, and I tell you lunvatinib Pembro is better with the caveat about the paclitaxel thing aside. All right. Sounds great. However, lunvatinib Pembro is way more toxic than chemo here. And we're talking 60 milligrams of doxorubicin, 60 milligrams per meter squared, okay? By itself, single agent. So think about the toxicity you see with the AC regimen. You know, it should be half that because you're just giving the anthracycline. So here, grade three adverse events, 89% with lunvatinib Pembro versus 73% with chemo. Like 15% absolute different lower with chemo. Uh, the biggest was hypertension, 64% with lunvatinib. 38% uh, grade 3, that's that's up there. Uh, hypothyroidism, 57%, almost none of those were grade 3. Only 1% grade 3 hypothyroidism. Uh, more gr diarrhea, grade 3 diarrhea, 7% versus 2%. More grade 3 nausea with lenvatinib Pembro, 3% versus 1%. More nausea with lenvatinib versus doxorubicin, okay? Lenvatinib Pembrolizumab causes more nausea than traditional chemotherapy drug doxorubicin. Um, decreased appetite, 8% versus 0.5%. Those are grade three, still with lenvatinib Pembro. Uh, there was more anemia with doxorubicin and, and paclitaxel compared to this. Uh, however, there was more fatigue with lenvatinib uh, 
Pembro, 5% grade 3 fatigue versus 3%. Um, uh, 5% grade 3 proteinuria. Uh, so, you know, there, you know, it's a pretty toxic thing, right? And so the dose of lumbatinib here is 20 milligrams to start with. The median dose intensity was 14. So people are getting, you know, easily a 25% or more dose reduction that requiring of lumbatinib due to toxicity. Uh, and the Pembro was for, uh, I think, up to two years, a 35 cycle, standard Pembrolizumab dosing. So, you know, we're going to see this become, you know, the standard of care after chemo, uh, I think, after carbapaclitaxel. Um, based on this trial, and I, I, I hope that there's not there's not some uh, you know enriching effect, not 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 enriching effect, but there's not some uh, you know you would hate that that overall survival curve for the chemo if you took out the paclitaxel folks that probably had already received paclitaxel, if you took that out, if that overall survival curve then matched the OS curve for lumbatinib pembro. That would be really disappointing. I don't know that we'll ever see that unless somebody convinces them to do that. And they already got the publication in the New England Journal of Medicine, so I don't think they're going to they'll probably say a whole lot when somebody does write a letter to the editor. Again, it's very possible that those folks that got paclitaxel, um, that they, you know, that um, they hadn't received prior paclitaxel. Maybe single agent carbo is what they do in other places. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know. At least, you know, a good chunk of these folks were not in, in the U.S. So, so that I don't know, but you were, are going to see more of this lenvatinib-pembrolizumab uh, combination. It's a pretty darn toxic combination, too. Um, you know, would like to see uh, certainly some quality of life measures from this as well. So anyway, another gynecologic oncology update. Several of those in the last couple of months, which is good for that patient population. Okay, so I've teased this next week. We're going to have a, uh, unless there's some major study that I want to talk about or something comes out, we're going to have a podcast I've recorded recently uh, with a pharmacogenomics precision medicine expert. It's about an hour, so a little bit longer. So you may want to save up some chores uh, or save it for your long, your long run on the weekend uh, next week. Uh, in the meantime, you can follow me on Twitter at PharmDeetNib. Follow the podcast on both Twitter and Instagram at OncoFarmPod. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. Thank you.